0: Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, I'm going to make a statement tonight that might excite some of you. Tonight, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Now, be careful about cheering like Tuesday night did, because, you know, as I warned them, Jesus would be offended if you cheered that we finally get through his sermon. But um, Jesus... Here in Matthew 7:21 through 23, go back and take a look at that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage has caused many Christians to fear that they might be surprised on the day of judgment. But a closer reading of these verses and an examination of the Holy Scripture will show us that Jesus wasn't trying to scare believers, but to warn those whose confidence was in their own efforts for salvation. We're going to deal with tonight that if you're His, He, he confirms that you'll know you're His. God never wants you to wonder if you're saved. That's an attack of the enemy. And this passage, and even when I was a younger preacher, I used to think that some would be surprised on the Day of Judgment. I want you to see tonight as we study this passage that I don't believe that Jesus is saying that these people are going to be surprised. As you're going to see from the context and from the whole of Scripture, when these people stand before their Creator on the Day of Judgment, they're not surprised that they're not getting into heaven. They're actually saying, didn't we do this, didn't we do that? They're actually showing where their faith had always been which was in themselves, all right? So let's let the scripture speak to us. He says, only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this begs a question, right? What's the will of the Father? If only those who do the will of the Father are those who get into heaven, what's the will of the Father? So let me show you from scripture what the answer to that question is. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 first and look at verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Very familiar passage, but look closely says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Did you catch that? What's the will of the Father? That none shall perish, and what? That all should come to repentance. Don't miss that. Now, again, remember what Jesus said in our study last week. Wides the path that goes to destruction and many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life and very few find it. So don't think for a second that the the scriptures here saying that everybody's going to go to heaven. His wish though, his will, the will of the Father, those who do the will of the Father, well the will of the Father is that all come to repentance. He's not wanting anyone to perish. For God so loved the world he sent his only son. Jesus died for everyone. God loves the world. He wants the world to be saved. He also knows that the world's going to reject him and Most of the world will spend eternity separate separate from Him in hell. But I want you to understand, first and foremost, the will of the Father is that people repent. Does anybody remember when we started the Sermon on the Mount, how it started? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Remember those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve over the fact that they're spiritually bankrupt. That's the whole idea of repentance, to realize you're a sinner, to realize this sin has separated you from God, to realize that God loves you and has provided a way for you to be made righteous, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll be filled, they'll be provided righteousness from outside. All along, this is a summation of what he's been talking about. So when he says, only those who do the will of my Father are those who get into heaven, first and foremost, he says, his will is that all come to repentance. He's looking for repentance. When John the Baptist came on the scene, as you remember in the early part of our study of Matthew, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go to John chapter 6. The scripture gets even more clear. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 28 and 29. As we're dealing with this question what is the will of the Father? In John chapter 6, look at verses 28 and 9. They said to him, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So we've already seen the will of the Father is that everyone come to repentance. The will of the Father or the works of God is what? Believe in the one the Father sent. Which is who? It's Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 23, one of the passages we looked at last week. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So here we've already seen only those who do the will of the Father are the ones going to be in the kingdom of heaven. What's the will of the Father? Repent. Put your faith in the one that he sent. And what? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. By the way, denying yourself is putting no confidence in your own ability to get yourself to heaven. That's denying yourself. Putting no confidence in the flesh. Actually, let's, let Paul explain it to us. Go to uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul lays it out real well here. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul says, finally, my brothers, Philippians 3 verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now look out for those dogs, the, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss. By the way, if you don't know anything about Paul, let me explain to you. Paul was this young man who grew up, as you see here, and circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was seriously studying the Scriptures, sought to be faithful to the law of God, wanted to work his way up in the Jewish circles, and he became a Pharisee. He was taught by Gamaliel, and the Bible says that he was just working his way up the ladder. And at one point, he had a personal experience with Jesus, where Jesus came, and he met Jesus face to face. And from that point on, everything that he had rested in, everything he had counted on, became what to him? Rubbish. Rubbish. That he would go exactly so that he would know Christ. By the way, he lost his position. He lost his prestige. He lost probably family members and relationships. Everything that he had spent his life working towards was given up because of Christ. And he actually says, he says, look, watch out for those people that put confidence in the flesh. Watch out for those people that just say because they're circumcised that they're righteous before God because they're doing all the right things. By the way, aren't our churches full of people that are proud of how good they are compared to how bad you are? He says, watch out for those folks who put confidence in their flesh. By the way, as I travel around and speak in many different churches around the country, a lot of times I'll go to longtime church members. Notice how I didn't say Christians. I've been to longtime church members and I'll say to them, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And a lot of times they'll say yes or they'll say, I hope so. But I always ask this second question. Well, how do you know? And you would be amazed at how many people answer with, well, I believe in Jesus and I've lived a good life. Uh, they haven't denied themselves. They put confidence in what they've done. Jesus says, only those that do the will of the Father are the ones who go to heaven. What's the will of the Father? We repent. That you repent. Don't miss that first part, folks. That you acknowledge you need righteousness from somewhere else because you don't have it. That you've broken God's law. Even if you're able to keep the whole law but stumble at just one point, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, you're guilty as if you broke it all. What's the will of the Father? You acknowledge your sin and you grieve over it and you say, I'm in trouble, I need help and I want to turn from my sin, but how do I get right? You don't say, well, I'll start living better. No, you put your faith in Jesus and you deny yourself. And Paul said, I count all of that. You thought you were, had, had confidence in the flesh? I challenge you to find more confidence in the flesh than I had. But I count it all as rubbish now that I may gain Christ and have a righteousness not coming from the law. But through faith in him. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, look at verses 37 through 41. As you're turning to Acts 2, let me just remind you this is at the conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came into that room and filled all the believers. And they started preaching in different languages, and people started hearing them in their own languages. And Peter stands up because everybody starts saying, These guys are drunk. Peter says, They're not drunk, it's early in the morning. And the Holy Spirit took over, and Peter preached a sermon that he hadn't even written. And at the end of the sermon, he says in verse thirty six, "Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Look at verse thirty seven. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Join the church." Make sure you tithe. And no, he didn't, did he? Peter said to them, What? Repent. The message was this. You want to do the will of the Father? Acknowledge your sin. Repent. Don't just acknowledge it, but realize you're in trouble because of it. Grieve and mourn and want to turn from it and need, uh, realize you need help. You go to Jesus and you put no confidence in anything you do. You put your full faith in what Jesus did through his sinless life, his sacrificial death on your behalf, and his rising from the dead. Go ahead. Why? Do you think going to get that back? Why? And here's why, it was an outward identification. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that with our heart we believe, but with our mouth we confess. As you know, back in that day when, Paul, when uh, John the Baptist preached his message and said uh, repent, they were then would identify or agree with his message and publicly acknowledge that he, they were gonna do what he said by being baptized. But then Jesus comes on the scene and they were baptized again in the name of Jesus. I'll explain it to you this way. I wear my wedding ring to show everybody that I'm married to Becky. We've been married coming up on 29 years this uh, July. If I take my wedding ring off, am I still married? Yeah, it doesn't make me married or not married. It's just the way that I show everybody. Your baptism doesn't make you saved or not saved. By the way, because if you put your faith in your baptism, you put your faith in something you've done, and that's your works. But the Bible says that you're to be baptized. That's one of the first things that we're to do. So I've always told people, when they say to me, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think I need to be baptized. Well, let me just tell you, that's the first thing that Jesus said to do. If you've really denied yourself and put your faith in Jesus, I think if he's your Lord, that's going to be one of the first things you're going to do. And so when you're baptized, you actually are identifying with Jesus. When you go down under the water, the old me's gone. I'm a new person because of Jesus Christ. It's your way of publicly confessing. What we do in our churches nowadays is we give an altar call, and we have them come down the aisle and pray a prayer, and we say, you're saved. That's fine, but... Their prayer back in that day was baptism. That was their confession. That was their public. I'm responding to this message. It was baptism. Go ahead. I've always wondered why, once I learned that, also another definition for baptism and everybody's thinking water identification. John the identifier. John identified Jesus Christ. To me, it makes more sense to understand. Uh, Yes, there is a ceremony of baptism, but the fact also is is that it is an identification with Christ. You're in him and he is in you. You're inseparable. I love that. I love John the Identifier. I love it. That's pretty cool. And if you actually do a study of the word baptizo in the Greek, you'll find out that actually it comes from dyeing cloth. And when they used to dye cloth, they would have in a vat the liquid with the dye in it, and they would take the cloth. And then when they put it in, it came out the color of whatever was in the bucket. That's what the word means. <laughs> it's identified, you know, that kind of a thing. So we'll go to Romans chapter three. Go to Romans chapter three. Look at verses 19 through 24. Folks, we could spend all night from Genesis to Revelation showing how this gospel has been preached throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament, all through the New It's been the same all along. Romans chapter 3, look at verses 19 through 24. Uh, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. By the way, um, who's under the law? Just the Jews or those who didn't have the law as well? Everyone. Remember, if you remember back what he just said in chapter 2, around verse 16, he said that when those... Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature what the law requires. It shows that it's a law unto themselves, their hearts condemning or, or, confirm, or, or convicting them. And what he's saying is this, is yes, the Jews were given the law, but God revealed his law to the Gentiles as well and that the f- fact that the Gentiles all had a sense of right and wrong. There are people in this world who may not have ever heard the word of God, but I promise you every one of them have a sense of there are right things and there are wrong things. Now, what they might consider right or wrong may be different from what you consider right and wrong. But at the same time, let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever in your own actions, in your own heart, gone against what you sensed was right and wrong? Yes. Romans 2, Paul says God's already revealed to you that you're a lawbreaker. Whether well, you have ever heard God's law or not, he's already shown you in your heart you're a lawbreaker. And look again at what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's everyone. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there's your answer right there. Everyone's under the law. and We're all guilty. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now... "...the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they had been all along, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." So when Jesus said, the only ones who go to heaven are those who do the will of the Father... What he was saying was, the only ones that go to heaven are those who understand their sin and repent of their sin, put their faith in Jesus and deny themselves and put their full faith in Christ, nothing in and of themselves. Of course, what did those people say? Wait a minute, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? Didn't we preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? And Jesus said, I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. You've been breaking the law the whole time, even though you were doing good things. Your faith was in what you did. I never knew you. Now, we're going to deal with something pretty tough here tonight, but actually it isn't if you let the Scripture speak to our hearts. It's pretty clear that we're saved by faith alone in Jesus' sinless life, his sacrificial death on our behalf, and his resurrection from the dead. But look closely at what he says to the many who will look to their, uh, as what they look at as proof to their worthiness to go to heaven. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 again. What's the key word in, in their response? Many on that day will say what? I or we. Did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Did you catch it? their faith was in what they did he says don't put any faith in what you've done now i want to talk tonight about the fact that judas was a great example of this kind of person judas was a perfect example of this kind of person did you know that hopefully you do know this judas was one of the disciples but he also was one designated by Jesus to be one of the 12 apostles. Go with me to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to ask you a tough question tonight. It's going to be rhetorical as we start, and then we'll try to wrestle with the answer in just a little bit. In Mark chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 19. It says, And he, this is Jesus, went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12 Whoa. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the 12 apostles, gave him authority to cast out demons. Here's the rhetorical question. Don't answer it yet. Why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of the 12? You're trying to answer it. I said, don't answer it yet. I don't know. Save it till later. But I want you to wrestle with that, because that's going to help us tonight with what we're going to be dealing with in our passage as we conclude the study of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve apostles, yet Judas was able to cast out demons, was he not? Did he not go out two by two and preach in the name of Jesus? By the way, we don't see anywhere in the gospel accounts that any... Remember, Judas was paired up with somebody... When they went out two by two, I've often wondered who Judas got paired up with. I don't know. I don't know. But we don't see anywhere that anybody came back and said, Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? Um, Judas couldn't cast out demons. Did you know that the scriptures actually say, and I'll get right to you, the scriptures actually say that the disciples had no idea when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples had no clue. It wasn't they were like, we know who it is. <laughs> Go ahead. But I, just, I read just recently that, and I didn't realize before that, Judas had been stealing from oh, yeah. them right along. Oh, yeah. yeah he, was the, he was the keeper of the treasury, and he had been stealing out of it, says in the Gospel of John. He had been stealing from it. As you're going to see in just a little bit, Judas never was a believer. Yet he was in the group. Jesus designated him to be one of the 12 apostles. By the way, there was always more. That's why in Acts chapter 1, they had to choose a replacement for Judas from someone that had been with them from his baptism all the way until his ascension. So, I'm sorry, until his resurrection to be a witness. There was always more, but Jesus chose Judas to be one of the 12. Let me, let me just show you. Go to Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples had no clue. But as you're about to see, Judas did. In Matthew 26, look at verses 20 through 25. When it was evening... Jesus reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, some of you say, well, it sounds like he wasn't sure. Oh, let the scripture speak. Go to Luke's account in Luke 22. Look at verses 14 through 23. By the way, as you're turning there, does anybody know, those of you that know your Bible, by the time we get to the Last Supper, had Judas already made his deal? He'd already made his deal, hadn't he? Oh, by the way, with those of you that wrestle over, well, what if unbelievers take the Lord's Supper? Judas did. Judas did. As you're going to hear me say a little later on, we got to stop trying to figure out who's supposed to do what and just leave that stuff to God. We're to preach it, we're to live it, and we're to leave the results to God. We still think it's our job to be Pharisees sometimes and decide who's supposed to be doing what. Go ahead. You say Judas Arrested, crucified the until after the ascension. Agreed, but at the same time Peter had already come to faith for sure, and the fact that these other men stayed showed that they had faith they didn't have full understanding until the Holy Spirit came. Fuller understanding you know, faith and understanding are two different things as you probably understand and I understand. We have faith, do we have full understanding? No, no exactly exactly. Go to Luke 22 and look at verses 14 through 23 in verse 14 And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, that it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Go to John's account in John chapter 13. Look at verses 21 through 30. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's how John referred to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something for the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Did Judas know? Judas knew. Judas wasn't caught by surprise. By the way, Scripture says he never was a believer. I want to deal with this, because there are some people that have tried to get Judas in heaven. They've tried to say, well, he really felt bad for what he did. Well, after Jesus died, he, he, he went back and he gave the money back that he had gotten for him and all this stuff. And I want you to understand the Scripture says Judas was never a believer. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, Judas didn't repent. He was sorry for what he did, but he didn't repent. Go ahead. What about that? At this point, Satan takes full control. He's, he's been his minion, if you will, For a while. Remember, if you before you're a child of God, you're a child of Satan. But at this point, Satan takes full control. That's why we gotta be real careful, folks, of messing around with stuff. You do know that you can invite Jesus into your life and into your heart, right? Do you know you can actually invite demons in? When you open yourself up to mess like that. Now the good news is I believe without question the scripture teaches that a true believer who is indwelt by the spirit of God will never be possessed by a demon. But that doesn't mean that we still won't allow the demons to oppress us. So we've got to be careful. At this point he had worked with him so long he'd given him full control and at that point Satan takes full control and Judas is done. I believe Judas had opportunity to respond. Although the scripture is going to show us that he never would. But go to Acts chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 25. By the way, all of this study on Judas is actually leading us somewhere back to our passage in Matthew. Go to Acts chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 25. In those days, this is after Jesus' resurrection. In those days, and this is after his ascension. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us to his resurrection, And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. According to that, did Judas go to heaven? No. Well, listen, listen to Jesus' words. Go to John 17. In John chapter 17, look at verse 12. Jesus is praying and he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was never a believer. One more passage that kind of illustrates this. Go to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Remember who's writing this? Who's writing first John? John. Remember, one of the twelve. Who was there leaning against Jesus' breast? One of the the one who asked him, Who is it? Who was there when Jesus said, It's the one I dip the morsel of bread and give it to? He writes, she says, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be complained that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, because you, but because you know it Went out, they went out from us, but the fact that they left showed that they never were of us. If they were, they would have stayed. Folks, listen closely to what I'm about to say, because I don't want you to miss here. There's some wrong teaching about suicide. I do not believe the Bible teaches that suicide is an unforgivable sin, and if someone commits suicide, they don't go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. But in Judas's case, it's evidence of the fact that he didn't go to heaven, and here's why. When Judas regretted what he had done, when Jesus died on the cross, and the scriptures, if you go back and look at the scriptures, he realized what he had done, and he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. He went back to the Pharisees, and he gave them the, tried to give them the money back, you remember, and they wouldn't take it because it was blood money. And he ran off, and what did he do? He tried to pay for his sins himself. If it was true repentance, he would have what? Denied himself and gone in faith to the son. Even though he had died, he would have believed and put his faith in the son. And when he committed suicide, it was his way of saying, I need to pay for what I've done. He didn't put faith in the son. Now, I'm going to let you answer the question then. Why did Jesus choose Judas then? Did, let me ask you this question first. Uh, did Jesus know that Judas wasn't going to be a, one of them? Or was Jesus Jesus duped? I mean, come on. I mean, Maybe he made a mistake. Of course he knew. He knows everything. He's God. He knew what everybody was thinking. He, he knew everything. Then why did Jesus choose Judas? There's lots of good answers, by the way. Very good, that's the first one. You already saw it in Acts chapter 1. Go back again to Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. I love how when Peter stood up in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, look at what he says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The prophecies in the Old Testament had said all along that one of his close disciples was going to betray him. Go to... John chapter 17, again, the passage that we looked at earlier with Jesus praying. Look again at verse 12. Look at how Jesus words it. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. I don't know if any of us really fully grasped this. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 24, after he rose from the dead on that first day of the week, and he met with the disciples he said this, I think it's around verse 44 and 45, he said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So folks, beware of any teachers out there that say, well, that stuff's not really going to happen. It's just uh, symbolic. No, Jesus said it must be fulfilled. And all the prophecies about his second coming and his set up his kingdom on the earth and all that stuff is going to happen. It's the exact same word you see when it says you must be born again when he talked to Nicodemus. It's the same word you see in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, what there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. When Jesus said the things written about me in the law and the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled, they're all going to be fulfilled. And Judas was prophesied to be one who was with them, a close friend who betrayed him. But there's other reasons as well. Exactly. It's to serve as an example of the parables of the soils and of the wheat. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 4. Go to Mark chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 20. Again he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them in many things and parables and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil and when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root and it withered away, another seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold, and he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word so that it's sown in that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves, did you catch that? In themselves, but endure for a while Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away, and others are the ones sown among thorns, and they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. By the way, we see an example of the seed that falls on the rocky soil in John chapter 6 where Jesus is preaching and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the scripture says, upon hearing this, they said, a lot of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And the Bible says they went away. They left. Do you know Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you guys want to go? And Peter says, well, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But there were those who followed for a while But then because things got a little hard or confusing, folks, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you've probably got friends or fellow church members who, when Mama died, and they didn't want Mama to die, they walked away from God because He wasn't there for them. Trouble of some sort comes. They got sick and they stopped following Jesus. There are others like the Judases, by the way, we've already seen like you just talked about. He was into money. He paid Jesus Jesus for so many pieces of silver and the cares of the world. Judas was okay with this Jesus guy until as we got closer and closer to the cross, he kept talking about dying. That's when Judas probably checked out. The cares of this world and the deceiveness of wealth choked him. But the Bible says some seed falls on the good soil. I'm going to ask you a question real quick. Doesn't Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, where it says there's no one righteous, not even one, and there's no one who understands. And doesn't James chapter 2, verse 10, which says if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty of all of it. And doesn't Romans chapter, chapter 3, verse 19 and following it looked at that says that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, that everyone is guilty before God. Doesn't the Bible say there's no such thing as good soil? You got to stick with me here before we can go any further. Would you not agree? The Bible says, before God does his work, there's no good soil anywhere. You got to understand that. There's no one out there that's good soil unless what? He does the work. Some of you might be gardening. Anybody here like to garden, doing a little planning? You're going to do gardening. You break up the fallow ground first, right? That's that's an old King James translation from the book of Jeremiah. But you take a rototiller or a hoe to the ground to break up the hard ground before you plant the seed. But you don't plant the seed yet. Once you broke the soil up, then you go and you get the rocks out. You don't plant seed yet. Then you go and you get the weeds and everything out. Then you plant the seed. Listen closely. The Bible says that that is all the work of the Holy Spirit, God's the one. No one comes to me, Jesus said in John 6, verse 44, unless the Father who sent me draws them. He begins his work. If you look at the scriptures, you'll see that people coming to salvation was a process as God began to break through their hard heart and their hard shell and show them their their need. Get them ready to respond to the word. Yet we've been taught how to evangelize by starting with page one of the tract and trying to get them to pray, pray a prayer by page 10. Where you just meet somebody and say, have you ever heard about God? No, I've never heard about God. Okay, let me tell you, would you like to pray that prayer right now? And we wonder why our churches are full of people who spring up. They even got baptized. They're church members. And we wonder why. Oh. As you're about to see, there are going to be those among us who aren't of us. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 24 to 30. Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be buried. But gather the wheat into my barn. By the way, when Jesus does come back, if you do a study of this and book of Revelation, when he sends his angels at the end of the tribulation period, remember the church has already been taken to heaven prior to this. But at the end of the tribulation period, all the wicked are going to be removed from the earth. And the only ones left on the earth are going to be the righteous who make it into the kingdom when Jesus comes back. Look closely at what he says. He said an enemy is going to put amongst the wheat, weeds. And he doesn't seem to be too bothered by it. You've heard me say this to you over and over. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, let me encourage you tonight with something. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you're truly one of those born-again people who are truly Christians, thank Him for that. But stop looking at all the church members and expect them all to be acting like Christians. That's been one of the problems we've had over the years is we've expected everyone that's here to act like a believer, but the Scripture says there's going to be people among us that aren't. Should we have some kind of a... ID or a, maybe a metal detector as people come in and out? Something that beeps red or green? No, leave that alone because actually there are some of those weeds that are going to become wheat. You don't know. Leave that to the Lord. But let me just help you take a deep breath. We spend too much time expecting everybody to be on board and to walk in the spirit. That's one, one of the things I try to teach churches as I go around the country is to show them that biblically, the model that God has for church government is elder leadership. It's in the scriptures that there will be proven godly spiritual men who oversee the church spiritually. But what we have done over the years is we make our churches congregationally governed where everybody's equal and everybody has an equal say and everybody gets a vote in church business meeting and we fight with each other and fight badly and sometimes at these business meetings, and I'm not joking, the police have to be called. Let me ask you a quick question. Does the scripture not say that in the last days there'll be many among us that really aren't of us that don't have the spirit? And doesn't the scripture also say that even though we have the spirit, we don't always walk in the spirit. Then why are we giving everybody an equal vote when we seek the will of God? I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to repent. I love it. So let's go back to Matthew chapter seven. They do though, remind us of our, of our sin and prompt us to draw closer to God as a result. Yes. Definitely. That's the only one that should have a vote, exactly, and we just do what he says. Go to, uh, go to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 24 through 27. He says, Then everyone then who hears these words of mine, and he does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. i ask you a question. What is your house, your life, your eternal life, your whole life, Built on? Is it on Jesus, who is the rock, by the way? Or is it on your efforts, your service? Over the years, as some of you have read my book on the principles of a God centered church and how God doesn't duplicate methods, and sometimes He does things different ways. Sometimes we kind of get stuck doing it the way we've always done it. And by following God and doing something a little bit different, sometimes what someone has always done, we're not going to do anymore. And I've watched people get so upset because this is what I do. Their faith is in what they do. Instead of walking with Jesus. May I ask you a question again? When trouble in this life comes, and the Bible says there's going to be trouble, and there's going to be trouble every day of some sort, is your faith... Is your heart, is your life settled on Jesus, the rock? See, because the scripture says in Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If your faith is on Jesus, you will not be offended by other believers. You won't have relationship issues with other believers because your faith's in Jesus Christ. And you'll seek to forgive and you'll reconcile. The Bible says that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you won't be upset if someone sits in your seat or someone else gets picked to sing the solo. The Bible actually says that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, other people can do stuff, but it won't rock your world because you're following the Lord. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be pastors who are going to let you down. There's going to be preachers who do things that you don't think they should do. And there's going to be preachers who actually aren't there for you when you thought they should have been there for you. Well, your house isn't set on the rock. You've built it on something else. And trust me, if you built it on anything else but Jesus Christ, you are going to be majorly disappointed. And by the way, when the final day of judgment comes, and that's what I think Jesus is pointing to in this passage, you're going to be in trouble. So don't think for a second. I've been faithful, I've worked hard, I've done repent of your sin deny yourself put your full faith in Jesus Christ that is the will of the Father go ahead Jim isn't it good at times though to have these things happen to you in other words that you are injured because somebody took your seat or this or that so that you can understand that it's an area that needs to be dealt with That's definitely God uses these things to shape us actually 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 says that these trials have come to prove your faith genuine. Paul actually wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 17. When I was a young preacher, I used to think, man, we should never be disagreeing in church. I used to always say this, you know, I was like, if you have the same Holy Spirit that I have, we should never disagree. Sounds good, doesn't it? But then I started reading more of the Bible, where the Bible actually says there's going to be times brothers and sisters don't say things the same. And we shouldn't be fighting with each other over it. To his own master he stands or falls, Romans chapter 14, verse 4, and who and the Lord's able to make him stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord's able to make him stand. Oh, and then on top of that, as we've just talked about, good grief, there's going to be people among us that aren't of us. And we don't know who they are. And we're not to try to figure it out. And then Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He ran around verse 17 and following. He said, I hear there are divisions among you, but no doubt, I believe it, because there must be divisions to show which of you are genuine. In other words, when division happens, and it's going to happen, when issues between brothers and sisters happen, it's going to happen, how we respond to it shows whether or not we're walking in the spirit or whether we're walking in the flesh. So like you said, Jim, even when we, who are true believers, not weeds, but wheat, we, we'll, God's going to use those times for growth. By the way, let me just remind you a few things. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, right? Don't, don't miss this. I want you to hear this. Remember what we looked at last week, how Jesus said narrow is the road that leads to eternal life? Haven't we been hearing people say there are many ways to God? There are many roads to God. Jesus himself said, I am, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except Through me. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Oh, the Bible also says he's the good shepherd. He's also said he's the door of the sheep. But he also said that he's the living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He also said in John chapter 6 that he is the bread from heaven. The narrow way. The rock. But I could go on. But has anybody caught it yet? All through the scripture, it keeps being pointed over and over and over. Jesus is the center. It's all on him. I'm going to ask you again. What are you looking at? Who are you looking at? When all this other stuff's going on in your life, who are you going to? Where's your focus? You build your house on Jesus. You'll be fine. Oh, stuff's going to happen. But if you build your house on Christ, you're going to be fine for eternity. Oh, and as we close tonight, let me also say this to you. Now, by the way, when I say close, we still got five minutes. Don't get too excited. They say that the definition of an optimist is the lady that puts her shoes back on when the preacher says in conclusion. But um, <clears throat> you remember back in Matthew 7, it talked about how Many will say, didn't we do this and did we do that? And people have for years thought that you could die and be surprised that you thought you were going to heaven and you're not. That's not the case. You know why? The scripture actually says, and I want you to see it, that his spirit confirms with our spirit that we're his children. Go to Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'll tell a quick story. My wife's father prayed a prayer when he was four years old because every night when his mama would tuck him into bed she'd say little jimmy do you want to give your heart to jesus tonight and at four years old he started to realize this is going to make her happy and he prayed a prayer and she was she told him well you're a christian now little jimmy went to church and did all the christian things and went to washita baptist university in arkansas arkadelphia arkansas Got married, moved to the Atlantic, joined a church, became a deacon, was a head deacon. Would preach when the pastor was out of town. But when he was 48 years old, he ended up on a camping trip up in Alaska with a buddy of his. And God got him alone up there in Alaska and showed him that his faith was in what he had been doing and not in Jesus And at 48 years old, he came back and received Christ. So shocking was this to the whole church and even the family, because I was dating his daughter at the time, was that when he walked down the aisle on a Wednesday night and told the pastor, I need to be saved, the pastor's response was, no, you don't. (laughs) But let me tell you, we saw such a radical change. But it rocked. It rocked the family. I mean, his wife even at the time was like, I've been married to him for 25 years. I've been married to a lie. And we sat her down and we said, the good news is he's saved now. (laughs) But at the same time, he then sat the whole family down and he said something profound. He said, listen to me. There is a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. Satan... Tries to make you wonder if you're saved. Anybody else been through that journey? I've been there. We've all been there. Satan wants to make you question your salvation. That's not what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 7. And actually, the Bible talks about the helmet of salvation and putting that on so that Satan can't attack you there. So you can't mess with your head and you know you're saved. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Folks, if you're truly saved, you know it. You know it because the spirit confirms it. Go to 1 John chapter four real quick. 1 John four, look at verse 13. 1 John four, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. You'll know you're his because he's given you his spirit and he's confirmed it. One last one. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Last verse for tonight. 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Listen to what it says. That's your favorite verse. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you failed to meet the test. Did you catch that? There was no, were you baptized? Did you say the prayer right? Have you joined a church? Have you done good deeds? None of that. Is Jesus in you? Is his spirit in you? Is he working in your heart? Is he making you different? Are you walking in obedience to what he says? You're fine. The will of the Father is to repent, deny yourself, and believe in the one that he sent. They were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes would always quote other people to get their authority. So-and-so says, Gamaliel says, and -and so-and-so says, Jesus said what? I say. All of us who are preachers and teachers should be not be trying to get people to believe what we say. But I want you to know what he says. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.